bold failure will always tell you the truth about your inner man, whether you're failing at failing or whether you're failing towards your growth. That's ministry founder, speaker, and championship basketball coach, Tori Bates, on this episode. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. This is your co-host, Larry Gates. Along with Armin Asadi. And we're so glad you're a part of this show. We are putting our faith to work and bringing our bold ideas to life. That's and right. And we're going to be interviewing a, a new friend today, someone that Armin has picked up along the way in his global travails around the world. That's right. Hitting elephant heinies and all kinds of other, <laughs> other Made things. Made a new bestie. Yeah, well, if you, if, you, if you missed what that was all about, you probably have to tune in to last week's show. But today on the program, we have Tori Bates. Tori was an NCAA basketball player and also coached national championships. He is the founder of Inner Man Academy. It is a ministry that empowers thousands of academically and socially impaired youth across the country to become self-reliant and caring citizens. We want to welcome to the podcast, Tori Bates. Larry, thank you so much for the invitation to come and fellowship with you all today. Oh, it's great to have you. And, um, you know, I know you and Armin just got to know each other and spent some time in Africa. And I, I got to get some of this little backstory here with Armin and his little elephant. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> he seems to have this little personal thing about this elephant that uh, charged him. And I Tori wasn't even there. so you can't uh, I wasn't there, but he came back with a video that showed everything except for him slapping the elephant on its butt. Uh -huh. so, so that's just rumor at this point. We don't have any, <laughs> right, we don't right. have any documented it's evidence. Kenyan, I heard some people <laughs> chanting uh, Kenyan legend or something like that, uh, <laughs> as we walked through the streets. So, oh, yeah. I don't, yes. I don't know. Maybe Maybe there's some truth to so it. So people were running up to Armin saying, is this the man that slapped the elephant? <laughs> yes, mentioned? yes. That, they were chanting that, and then he was followed by um, a line of um, of people who were with us, and so they went right from Kenyan legend to shouting and chanting white people or something like that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and they were all right, exactly what happened. I was like, I was like, what are they saying, man? They sound excited. <laughs> Armin said, I think they're saying uh, white people, Tori. I, I hope they're not talking to you. I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, so there we were walking out of a school. Tori Sagwa, we were walking out of a school, and we were about, uh, and we were getting in the van, and we were about to roll out uh, to leave the school to go somewhere else. And these kids were just like chanting something out of the window, and Tori was getting excited, like, "What are they saying? What are they saying?" I'm like, ah, "I'm pretty sure they're yelling white people." <laughs> ah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's not as exciting as that. Well, well, no, the well, Kenyan legend and the white people. Oh, wow! Exactly. So I, I know, I know that trip left an impact on Armin. How did it impact you? Well, um, in a lot of different ways. One, I would say, is uh, of course being a a black man uh, going to Africa for the first time may sound a little stereotypical, but it, it impacted me a lot just being able to see uh, black leadership everywhere, mm. um, to see, you know, black people doing it all from uh, running the government to the police. Um, all of that just made a, a huge impact on me, um, especially seeing, you know, uh, I'm, you know, the, the racial tension that now exists uh, in America again, I guess we can't say again, but that it's public and people are bold about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I have my opinions on all of the different movements that have started. And so uh, being able to see the leadership among black people, to be able to meet so many educated men and women 
to be able to see the strength in women carrying, you know, car wash buckets on their head filled with clean water for their families um, and bags in their hand and not missing a beat. All of that impacted me tremendously. Um, it, it certainly um, helped me to realize um, just that it's not a fictional thing to be raising young black boys and the black men and knowing that um, the opportunities for them across this world are endless. Mm. So that was inspiring for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. As I've said uh, to Armin while we were there, um, I felt like an adopted son who had come home for the first time. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. One of the things Tori kept saying is every time you'd watch these people do their thing in Kenya, whether it was running their business, doing their little street hustle or whatever it was of selling corn or candy or whatever, he kept saying, no excuses. There's no excuses here. There's no excuses here. He just kept saying yeah. it over and over. Yeah. He's like, There's there, no so the, the, the idea that they're owning their situation, yeah. is that what you're saying? Absolutely. There was, um, um, we were there because we're, um, Armin and I are working um, with a, uh, with this called the Leadership Foundations, and they have a, a project called the Highway of Hope. And so they're building 16 courts in uh, Kibera or Kibra. Um, and which is the largest slum in the world. So two of those courts are already built. One of the courts uh, we got to had a huge hole in the backboard. Like oh, when you say hole. courts, you're talking basketball courts, basketball not judicial court, courts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. You can tell that you can tell that ball is life for me. I just right. get right to it. Okay. Um, but yes, basketball courts, building basketball courts, and um, there was a big hole in the in the backboard. And if you know anything about basketball, I mean that doesn't work so well, does it? It doesn't work. Doesn't it's not work very well. <laughs> right, right, not golf. No. And you know, I thought, I thought, you know, if we were if we were in the states, one, we would be inside, and two, if there was a hole in the backboard, we would be shutting that side of the court down, saying, "Hey, we're going to wait, you know, on a mechanic to come and fix this." Right. Um, these guys showed up with a piece of plywood, no ladder, standing on a table and a stool, <laughs> and first aid tape. They fixed the backboard with the plywood. Yep. Hey, man, do what you got to do. <laughs> hey, you do what you so, have so to do. So the passion for the game is greater than the work that it takes to uh, to fix the equipment. That's Absolutely. good. That's good. Yep. So I know you teach these kind of principles to your kids in the inner man Academy. Before we get to that though, talk about your own journey. How did you get to, to where you are today? Uh, well, I am, I'm originally from Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and, uh, my family, most of my family still resides there. Um, I currently live in Lawrenceville, Georgia with my family. Um, and my parents live here as well. Um, I'm a product of a, a divorced family. My mom and dad got divorced when I was around two years old, did not know a whole lot about the, uh, them being married at all, mm -hmm. uh, but I knew the aftermath of them and just the drama that went along in that situation. My dad had gotten remarried um, to a young lady who was about 25 years younger than he was that was still in college. And um, my mom had left college in order to marry my dad. And so when mm -hmm. everything hit the fan, my dad was left with all the money, all the education, and he was left with us because he he earned the most. And so my mom um, didn't feel like, you know, she was capable at that moment of keeping us. And mm -hmm. so the courts awarded us to my mom, to my dad, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And out of that, um, my whole life was shaped. My dad was uh, was an alcoholic and a drug addict. The amount of times I can tell you at a young age um, are countless of my brother and I 
helping my dad into the house, passed out in his car, passed out on the hood. All of those moments are very vivid for me. Um, and the abuse that came along with that at the hands of my dad and my stepmom. Mm. Um, my dad ended up, you know, um, very, very wealthy um, in those years. That's the early 80s. Not that I'm really trying to tell my age today. Um, <laughs> but um, but my dad was very, very abusive and physically abusive and verbally abusive where he would come home from a night of being out and would wake us up in the middle of the night and would just go to work on my brother and I oh. and my stepmom. And so we endured that for many, many years. And um, we would see my mom every other weekend. And uh, my brother eventually was kicked out of my father's house and sent to go live with my mom. And I was left there. And so I would cry every time I went. And, and how old were you then here at this I was, point? I was, I was about seven, okay. going on eight years old. All right. And uh, I would cry every time because I was a mama's boy to the core. And uh, we would get there and talk to my mom and have a great time. And my dad and my stepmom would come and pick me up. And I would be literally waving goodbye to my, my mom and my brother. And so I can remember one time I got in the car and I was crying and my dad looked at me and he didn't have any filter. And so he literally turned and cursed me out, asked me what the explicative was wrong with me. Yeah. And um, I told him I wanted to stay with my mom. And he was like, well, go ask her. And I looked at him like, he had just, you know, he had just split the Red Sea, you know, like <laughs> what, helped, you know, it opened up the prison doors. Yeah, <laughs> right. So I ran back upstairs to my mom's apartment and I knocked on the door and she came to the door um, and you could tell she had been crying already. And I said, you know, daddy said I can stay with you. And she looked at me and she bent down and she was crying. She was like, baby, I can't afford you. Mm. What did you do? And there was nothing I could do. You know, I turned and uh, I was crying, but I turned and I went back down the stairs and I got in the car and my dad was looking at me like, you sucker, you know? Mm. And, um, but that thought, you know, years later and in counseling, I realized after being expelled from school as an adolescent, um, being kicked out of my brother's house, traveling across country um, to finish school in Detroit, Michigan with a rehabilitated father, um, I realized that my whole life I had been chasing that thought, you know, that thought of trying to be affordable, just trying to be enough for everybody. Mm. Am I acceptable? Am I acceptable? Yes. Mm. Am I enough? Mm -hmm. What did that question, that driving question for you, how did that manifest itself? What came out of you to try to get answers to that question? Drugs. Of course, um, you know, I, I began, you know, smoking marijuana at a very, very young age, um, sex, um, all of all of the above. Right. That you hear about. Those were the things that I ran to. But I think more importantly, I became a pretender. Um, I, I was a chameleon, whatever I had to become for whatever audience I became that. Um, and because my, my life was so abusive at such a young age school became my family. My friends were my family. When I went to school, that was my place of peace. And so that's where I acted out the most. I was a celebrity. I was the funny guy, the class clown. I was the one who was very bold, who would talk back to teachers. So that became who I was. And so I acted out in that way up until my sophomore year of high school when I was expelled from the entire Fulton County school system um, in Georgia. And, um, and then moved around and the same thing. I would always find a way to become a chameleon 
um, where I looked like I was leading from the outside because I was the funny one. I was the loud one, the one always who always had something to say. And yet internally I was running, running from, you know, my pain and all of the failures of, you know, everything that had happened um, in my life, all of the different opportunities that I had messed up. And so um, it, that's the way it played itself out in my, my everyday life. And, and how did you how did you come to recognize that and change? Well, I was uh, I was in Detroit, Michigan. My real father um, had gotten rehabilitated, had gotten back in his field. And um, I spent my senior year of high school with him out there and I was playing basketball and everything. And, um, I was on my way to a, a, a party one night with one of my buddies who I had known from seventh grade that was living in Michigan as well. And, um, we were on our way to, to his house and I passed out, you know, that was kind of moment one mm-hmm. I passed out, but I passed out on the side of the highway and we had girls in the car and you know, so this whole image thing was ruined. I began to throw up all over everybody on the girl in the back seat. And, you know, <laughs> it was uh, a nice date. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like, you know, to say the least, she certainly did not call me back. Um, but uh, but the next weekend after that huge failure, um, I was taken to the Promise Keepers Convention at the Detroit Silverdome where the speaker began to talk about his huddle of friends. He was an ex-football player for the Oakland Raiders and um, and he just talked about how playing away games were always the toughest because you had the whole crowd against you. You could hear them. All of that was just so much. And so as a wide receiver, it would get lonely out there. But that after every play, they would come back down and he would realize that he had 10 other people that were on the field with him through thick and thin. And he paused and he said, what's your huddle of friends made up of? And the spirit of God used that to convict me because, you know, as I said, my my whole life had been based around my friends were my family. I would do anything for my friends, absolutely anything, because they were my family. And I realized that I was living for them and not for God. And I realized that how empty I was in that moment it may have been the first time I really recognized it and understood that the spirit of God was trying to call me to himself. So I got up from my seat. I went down um, onto the field where, you know, Probably thousands of men were giving their life to Christ and there was no counselor available for me. And so I began to pray and I asked God to forgive me and if he would change my life. And um, and he did. You know, I left that that silver dome and my life was changed. Wow, that's great. What a neat transformational story. But how did you hook in to create a new huddle of friends that were going to then take you to where you needed to go? Well, the easy part was that I, it was the end of the school year. So this was April and I was graduating from high school in June. And so um, after I graduated, the weather was cold. Um, and so I immediately moved back to Atlanta. And so in Atlanta, I was now able to rec- I was starting afresh. I had been gone for three years outside of coming home for spring break. Um, I still had my friends that I'd grown up with, but I was different. And they could see the difference in me. Mm. And so it made my friends begin to ask, man, what in the world has happened to you? <laughs> you know? And so um, I began to just surround myself with that. I began to attend the local Bible study uh, for young people at my church. And, um, you know, and, and that connection began me to ask the question, you know, God, why did you save me? You know, um, 
real quick story I was uh, that that just showed the transformation in my life was I was back in um, a state that I lived in called Huntsville, Alabama, and I was sitting in a room with a, a group of uh, guys my age and an older gentleman who's now really, really famous. His name is Eric Thomas. And we were living in his home. We were staying in his house that night talking. And I was sharing a story about how God had changed my life. And this guy walks in who I had really bullied one day outside of church and like, you know, slamming his head against the brick wall and just being really, really mean teenager. And, uh, and so he walks in as I'm sharing my story and I recognized him, but you know, I didn't think anything else about it. And after I finished talking, he opened up crying and trembling. And he said, I came over here to kill you. Mm. And I feel like there's a bubble around you now and God won't let me do it. Mm. And he set the gun on the table and they hugged him and obviously escorted him out the room. But that alone showed me that what God had done in my life was not religious at all, but I had truly had a spiritual awakening that other people could see. Wow. So Tori, the pain from your past and the effect of your mom and your dad and the abuse didn't really stop rubbing off on you um, even through the salvation process, because later on you got married, you ended up getting divorced, you ended up getting fired from a church. Can you really briefly touch on those two points? Because I believe it's really important to the theme of what we're about to talk about. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I came right out of right out of high school and went into Bible college. And so once again, my identity was wrapped into something new. So now I became a preacher and um, and I knew I had to live a certain way, but there were things on the inside that I hadn't rectified. There was no discipleship. And out of that need to be affordable, I met a, um, a young lady. Um, we dated for about eight months. And uh, then I moved to Dallas, Texas. And she was about three years older than I was. And uh, she was putting a full court press on me. You know, <laughs> she was trying to get married. Um, I didn't want to lose her. Um, she had really long hair, was beautiful, oh, yeah. had brown eyes, you know, and so I, I married her and I call it my JLo marriage cause we were married <laughs> for about a year, nice. <laughs> you know, and that marriage happened out of my own need to not admit that there was something that I still had, hadn't addressed, but, um, us not getting, us getting divorced meant I was working in a nonprofit field for a mega evangelical church, um, in Dallas, Texas. And uh, I tell everyone, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar, familiar with the movie Friday. Are y'all familiar with the movie Friday? Yeah, with, I uh, am. Larry Ice probably isn't. Larry no. isn't. Okay. <laughs> but there's a, anyway, so I tell everyone, they fired me on my day off like Craig from Friday. <laughs> you know? The church did. Um, the church did. Yeah. Yes, fired me. Um, they said that I was bad for business because of the fact that, um, you know, my wife, uh, my ex-wife and I were getting divorced the the past of evangelism was my accountability partner. So it wasn't as if they didn't know what I was going through. But once it occurred, um, they just let me go. There was no check in. There were no brothers reaching out to me asking me, hey, you know, what's next? How are you doing, brother? How can we serve you? How can we walk with you? I mean, things went totally silent. Mm. And once again, I just felt like, you know, bad for business, you know, divorce, marriage that didn't work right. Man, like I was still living out of that same pain of that kid who was never affordable. Mm-hmm. Although my life had changed, no discipleship had occurred or anything. And so I had not dealt with any of that still. I wrapped it up and put it in a little pretty box and put it in the closet. But it was still affecting 
the way I lived and the decisions I was making. So you came from a failed marriage of your parents. You had a failed childhood. You had a failed high school and just schooling in in general. Eventually it got cleaned up, but then it led to a marriage that became a failed marriage. And then you got into the nonprofit church world, which turned into a failed uh, ministry career. And then you got into the career of doing secular work, which you were pretty successful at. So let's talk about, so there was the first part of how you overcame that thought of being not affordable or not worthy um, and how you got into like the church world and got married, but then ended up divorced. So now that you've failed again, how did you overcome the second round of failures? Well, it really just happened via, um, you know, the spirit of God being at work in my life to be real honest with you. What does that mean? Um, uh, basically, I was, I had, you know, gotten sober in the sense of um, I wasn't trying to live in the fast lane. I wasn't living to prove people wrong. Um, I was living for that day and trying to do my very best to establish myself in one day at a time. And so, you know, I was in a job and a gentleman came in the train I became the top sales executive in the company I was working for at the time called Fleet Core Technologies. And this guy walks in, older gentleman named Floyd Matthews, and um, and he starts talking to me about basketball and getting involved in an organization he was a part of as we're talking. And um, and I told him I would come out, and um, I did. I went out to the church that uh, I, I called a cab at the time. I did not have a car again yet. And so I called a cab out to the church where he was holding practice. And recognize that it was the same church that, you know, maybe a year earlier had paid my rent for me and then asked me any questions, which was my first interaction with church or anyone that was, I guess, distinctively Christian again. And so it was out of that pursuit. And um, I started going back every week. You know, they had practice two days a week. I was there two days a week, establishing a relationship with the boys and everything. And eventually they asked me in that same first year, would I help another coach with a team, which I did. And then that coach quit. So here I was, I played basketball all the way through college and and had some opportunities to go overseas and play, but really wanted to do ministry. And so out of that, you know, I basically God used the game of basketball to draw me back to himself. And so as I was getting better and things were doing well financially, and I was, you know, doing better in those areas, um, and rebuilding and reestablishing my life, I began to see that, man, maybe maybe God still does have a plan to use me. And so because of that, I guess where I started and started differently this time was that I didn't just hop into somebody's box. My pastor told me, hey, you feel like God wants you to share your story. You need to become a preacher. Let's get you licensed and ordained. Well, this time it was me sitting in a one-bedroom apartment and praying and asking God, God, will you give me another chance? And I think, Armin, that that's where it started for me. It was out of God establishing my path, sending me back to this church, you know, months later that it paid my rent and using basketball to draw me back to himself. All right. So, Tori, tell me about uh, where has all this brought you to today? Who is Tori Bates today? Tori Bates is a husband um, to Jennifer. I'm a father of... um, six beautiful children. Um, I am currently residing in Lawrenceville, Georgia. I'm the founder of uh, Interman Academy, which exists in Georgia, um, franchised out in 
in Minnesota, uh, North Dakota and Mississippi. Um, and we're using basketball simply stated to develop more than elite athletes. And I know just from my time together, you guys have accomplished incredible things. I mean, each event that you guys hold brings in hundreds of kids. You have even been able to train kids to get them to Columbia University and other Ivy League schools. Is that all right? Did I catch you that? Yeah, absolutely. We've got kids at Mercer University, um, Truett McConley, um, University of Alabama, Florida Gulf Coast. I could go on and on um, of kids who we've had a chance to meet that didn't prior to us being able to fellowship together, have an opportunity to go on um, and play basketball at the next level. And now those kids are, you know, getting a hundred grand over four years um, to compete in the game of basketball. And that is in direct relation of our relationships with one another. What are the key principles you're trying to teach these kids through Interman Academy? That accountability is really, really important to you being successful. You having a small group of individuals you can count on and not living on an island. Two, um, that there is trust that you must be willing to put in a power greater than yourself. Um, And that three, you must be willing to fail early and often in order to get to where you want to go. This is the Bold Idea Podcast. Well, I mean, this is probably a good time to take a pause from this episode and thank our listeners who've supported the Bold Idea Podcast. You are the reason we exist. This is a nonprofit. That means we don't make profit off of doing this. This costs money. So if you're the people out there that are supporting us and donating to us, you're the reason that we've been able to do this for over a year. And we'd love to be able to do this for another year or two and bring on more amazing guests. So we would love your support. If you feel so led, just go to boldideapodcast.com forward slash donate. And thank you again. Obviously, this is this program, the way that you mentor these kids and develop them, you, you've been able to do with them what no one else could do with you. And it's almost like you've created something that you wish you had when you were a kid. And now it's taking Absolutely. these kids to Ivy League schools. So now for the uh, adults that are listening to this, what is your greatest takeaway from all these uh, trials and challenges and turbulations that you went through to bring you to a place of success and accomplishment that you're in right now. And it's not just a success for yourself, but it, your success is bleeding into everyone else's life and it's making them successful as well. So what is the lesson in that? I think that the first lesson in that, mean is that those who are bold enough to embrace failure are the type of leaders that every progressive organization must have. So there are adults all around this country that are leading in some capacity and yet what we're all after and our ang- and struggle with are when we miss the mark, not being adequate enough, not having enough education, um, the mistakes that we've made that we feel like um, make us disqualified. And yet I would say that it are it it is those things. It is the failures. It is the miss marks that are teaching you what it takes in order for you to be the, the type of leader that God has created you to be. What, what does it mean to embrace failure? So the way I would explain it, Larry, is like lifting weights, right? Everybody, you know, the beginning of the year wants to get buff, wants to get in better shape. 
Um, if Larry you're listening, knows about that right now. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm to push him oh, over. Yeah, you, you, you're trying to get right there. Uh, he's getting swole, Tori. Don't get it confused. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> hey, I may need a selfie after the podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> um, but so, so then you guys understand what I mean, then, right? Like, in order for me to lose the belly fat or to get stronger or to tone up, I've got to reach in what people who are are lifting weights or any trainer would tell you, you've got to go to the point of failure. Why? Because when you reach that point of failure, even when you're repping out at the bench, it breaks down the muscle. And that muscle has to be broken down first before you can build it up. And so in life, it's the same way. You've got to embrace the fact that you're going to make some mistakes and accept that in order for that to then be used for your good and not for your bad. Yeah. So how do you know, I don't know how to put this, but how do you know that you're failing rightly and you're not failing at failing? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I think that sometimes when you're, I don't think that there's any cookie cutter answer to that, Larry. I think that it's partly based on your relationship with God. You know, Um, I think that um, it's, it's trial and error. It's, taking very close accountability of yourself and being prayerful. Okay. Well, let let me, let me, let me make it personal. Then when you, when you look back either at the failures that you've had in your life or even the ones that you might experience, you know, yesterday or in the near past, what do you look for in yourself? What questions do you ask to, to say, you know what? I, I ran from that failure or I embraced it. How do you ask that question of yourself? I ask myself very clearly, am I being, are you being honest with yourself? You know, I think the hardest thing to do every day is to take the time to actually look yourself in the mirror, like to truly look at yourself. I think that bold failure, you know, will always tell you the truth about your inner man, whether you're failing at failing or whether you're failing towards your growth. I think that those things are always very important. So that's the question I start with. Am I being honest with myself? If I'm being honest with myself, then I know, Okay, you know what? I probably overspent a little bit this month. Right now, although I failed at failing because that's maybe a mistake I've made more than once. Now I've owned it. And in owning it, that's the key to you really being able to grow from it. Yeah, that's good. I like that ownership thing. But are there strategies that you put in place to make sure you're honest with yourself? I mean, because, you know, the Bible says the heart is wickedly deceptive, right? Absolutely. I think that I think that community is extremely important um, to growth and to staying on the right right path. And and what I mean by that is, you know, you've got to have, you've got to have a a Barnabas in your life, as people call them, you know, an encourager. You've got to have a a Paul, somebody who's ahead of you, who can look back and will speak the truth to you, but that will also guide you with love. Um, And then you've also got to be surrounded and inspired by the young Timothys that are below you, that encourage you. I think all three of those elements in the life of every person are extremely important. Sometimes most of us have have Pauls and a lot of them. And so we've got always got someone we can call and cry me a river to or that somebody's pouring into us. But without the element of having somebody who encourages us and also having someone that we're pouring back into, um, there's no real opportunity for growth because it's still all self-focused. I think the biggest thing I've had to learn in my failures is that my failures are bigger than me. What do you mean by that? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Well, when I look back in my childhood, um, and if I was talking to to young Tory, or as they call me when I was young, if I was talking to T-Man, um, you know, the, the first thing I would tell that kid is that it wasn't your fault, right? Like, even when I was getting kicked out of school, yeah, I was making some decisions, but it was based off where I came out of. 
I would tell that person that I love you and I'll never let it happen to you again. Right. Mm -hmm. I would make sure that I understood that, you know, although it's hard to believe right now when all of this is happening to you, um, but that is happening to you in order for you to be able to help others. When you say your failures are bigger than you, you mean the byproduct of what you experience through failure is is bigger than you? Is that what you mean by that? Or I'm not I guess I'm not quite Yes, absolutely. Okay. So So it's for there instance, for a reason, is what you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, you think that every time the lion goes out the hunt that it comes back with a a, a prize kill, you know? But but we but that lion because that's that, a relevant that, question. Got it. I was you know, <laughs> trying to th- think the, about the answer to that question. <laughs> they don't. Yeah, that's, that's, that's rhetorical. That's okay, rhetorical. gotcha. You know, um, you know, I just think that everyone's pathway, whether we want to admit it or not, um, and if you're walking in your vision um, in any arena, then it is riddled with memories of failure that you probably thought you wouldn't recover from. You know, for me, it was my failed marriage. It was my failed childhood. It was being borderline homeless. No one could tell me that we would recover from that um, and that I would be where I am now. But that pathway, right, of every time I've attempted something so great for God that is doomed to fail unless he be in it. Well, I've had to kind of address that. When you're attempting something great for God, there are moments that you will fail and God is still in it. Okay, so can I get personal with you real quick? Please. We've been talking about failure and how we embrace it. Let's talk about the failure that you experienced that was so difficult for you with your dad abusing you and your mom kind of dismissing you because, you know, that she couldn't afford you. How do you embrace the failure in others and how did you do that with your dad and your mom? Well, the first thing um, I do, let's say I'm, I'm talking to um, a new leader um, that we've gone in to help him leverage his budget and his resources um, to grow, the first thing I tell them is that, man, you've got to get comfortable making mistakes. In any practice I have, I tell a kid, hey, I want to see you. I want to see you fail 100 times today in practice so that when we go into a game, when it really counts, you've learned from those failures and you've perfected your craft out of it. Yeah, but what if the failure directly affects you like it did with your dad and your mom? How do, how do you address failure in others in a way that gives you the opportunity to embrace a failure in others? Is that possible? Sometimes. I mean, it's it's not perfect. Right. It's not perfect even in me. Um, but but a part of that is is honesty. You know, um, a part of what has to be addressed and part of what I've learned and am learning to address on a daily. is not running from my emotions. I've got to be able to find a way to communicate what I feel when I'm feeling it so that it then doesn't come out sideways on someone else. So if I've been offended, like, you know, my relationship with my real dad um, I've forgiven him, um, but because I know what he's capable of, um, I handle him with a wooden spoon. I'll speak to him. Um, I'll give him a chance to talk to his ki- his grandkids if he wants. But because of that, I've learned that in order for me to be healthy, I've got to be able to admit to myself, you know what? This probably isn't a great relationship for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have you to know? draw boundaries to you know, respect the fact that they have their choices in their own abuse and that sort of thing as well. But, you know, failure is a big piece of what you're teaching your kids. And I'm guessing that a lot of the kids in Interman Academy have had experiences like you've had. How do you help them process those experiences? Well, we use one model that we call the WIN model, um, like an acronym, what's important now. So after you fail, what's important? What's the next steps, right? What do you do from this moment forward 
to make sure that you can grow from this. And out of that, we help create a model around that of just strategies for being honest with yourself, you know, finding accountability partners, um, journaling. And these are all areas that even um, if we're teaching a life skill class at a camp or clinic that we would want to walk any kid through so that they've got a life skill around, hey, what's important now? I just got in trouble in class. The teacher told me if it happens one more time. So I can sit there and be very upset that the teacher just called me out or I can ask myself, what's important right now? What 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 can I do right now that will help me get a win the rest of the day? Because the game isn't over as long as there's time still on the clock. Mm. So that's what we've tried to create is life skills around even that model alone. So the kids know how to be their own greatest resource in the moment. Yeah, you know, in, uh, in Kenya, you said something that really stuck with me. You said, I really go out of my way to make sure that these kids realize that their mistakes, their errors, their failures do not identify them. But this is the stepping stone of life for them to become who God has designed them to be. And that really stuck with me. And I know that you live that out, especially watching the way that you were coaching those kids in Africa because they just came alive. They never came alive for me or art or anyone else, you know, like we never got, we never got gifts. We never got high fives. We never got like, you were the one who got all the gifts. But I I think it's because you live that out because there's so many of us, especially as kids where we allow our mistakes and failures to identify us. But it's like you walk in and you kill that as the identity and you use it as a motivator of saying, what are you becoming through that? And I think that's what makes you so amazing as a coach and as a leader for the nonprofit you are. But because our time is wrapped up, I want to know what is your next bold idea and how do our people get a hold of you? Well, our next bold idea is, um, as I've said, Interman Academy is in a few different states now. But um, coming back from Kenya as well, I, I recognize that God's plan is to use us in a sport of basketball to tell the story of redemption. So our big bold idea is taking student athletes who have the ability to play at the next level and aspire to play basketball at that next level and to be able to, to take them, put them on the world's biggest stage to play and connect those trips with missional work so that those kids not only get a chance to, to project what their future will be based on their performance and playing in front of standing room only college coaches, but they also get to get out into every community we go into when we travel and learn how in a very real way to affect change amongst young people while they're there. And so that's our next big idea is that that being a global approach to God telling his story of redemption is to be able to take young people and to develop them to not only play the game at a high level, but to be able to learn how to give their life away. Mm-hmm. That's awesome, man. And if people want to get involved with you, get in contact with you or support you, how do they do that? Well, you can go to our website, um, innerman.com. Um, I-N-N-E-R-M-A-N.com. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, same one, Interman. Um, or you can follow me on Twitter, which is probably where I'm the most active. Uh, T-Bakes922 um, is where you can find me there. Um, and would certainly love to speak to anyone that is interested in um, getting involved with missional work among student athletes. And for those who reach out to me, I'll, I'll send them a, a free Created to be a Champion t-shirt. Whoa. All right. Extra large. <laughs> Extra large. Coming you, you two know you all have one coming. I appreciate, I appreciate Sorry. the fellowship, gentlemen. Uh, just one last question. Even though it's Inner Man Academy, I mean, it serves both boys and girls, right? It's, or is it just for, just for guys? Correct. 
it's it's boys and girls. Inner man comes from the scriptures where it says that the outer man is perishing every day, but the inner man is being renewed daily. Yeah, yeah. So inner man is used in the in the Greek that is not gender specific. It represents uh, the seat of the will in which the spirit of God dwells. Right on. All right. Well, Tori, thanks again for being on the Bold Idea Podcast. Well, we really appreciate your vulnerability and your sharing your life stories. Uh, you know, I, I know all of our listeners can probably relate to aspects of that pain that you feel when you've been betrayed, you feel like you're not enough, and uh, just the strategies that you're employing to help kids uh, deal with those issues at an earlier age than probably many of us have. Uh, that's just very commendable, and boy, we're just praying for the success of your ministry, and, and we thank you for it. Well, I appreciate you all giving me a chance to interact with your listeners. And I certainly want to encourage you gentlemen, as well as your listeners, that as you go, um, that one of the key elements to achieving greatness is bold failure. All right, man. Thanks, Thanks. Tori. Well, Armin, it was fun to meet your friend, Tori. Yep. Your African travel pal. That's right. He's my... uh Africano. I don't I don't know. Yeah, I don't even have a name yet. We don't have anything cool going on. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think well, I think maybe you should come up with another yeah, name. I know. I don't know. My first group we came up with the charging rhinos, but that's because everyone thought we were a fraternity, so we had to come up with something weird and that's what we came up with. All right. Tori and I are not there yet. We'll make it. Well, it was good to uh good to chat with him and, and just be reminded about how important failure is uh in establishing our identity and also the resiliency that we have to overcome it yeah i mean uh it's uncomfortable <laughs> yeah it <laughs> you know, is. like uh when you actually get into it and uh process it and be vulnerable vulnerable about how your failures have affected you and how you've let allowed your failures to leak into your life and like when you really get into it and talk about the impact of it. It's, it's a very, very uncomfortable process, but man, once you actually do it and you identify the way it's, way it's impacted you or affected you, it gives you so much power to, uh, stop it from continuing its same negative effects on you and be able to turn the, uh, wheel and make it, you know, actually work for you rather than against you. But it's, it's, it's really uncomfortable. Well, we're such a success driven culture, you know, really everything that gets propagated is largely success stories and it's the failure stories that make the news. And most of us want to stay out of those kind of headlines, you know, so we give, we give the kind of positive stories about our life, how you doing and doing well. Yeah. And I remember a time when we came here early on and Anna had been asked, you know, how you doing? And she was honest about feeling kind of depressed and mm-hmm. homesick and um you know at church some people didn't handle that very well because right. they really didn't want to enter into the mess of someone else's failure yeah and uh and so i like what he said about being honest with yourself because i think mm-hmm. that's a really vital piece of that and and i remember uh robert fritz who wrote the path of least resistance and i've been taking some courses from him and he's just a really smart guy not a believer well not not in the sense that you and i talk about it but sure. but he he keep saying, and I keep remembering this as a very important principle, and I say it to myself, reality is your friend. Mm. And I keep saying that to myself because we do like to deceive ourselves. Yeah, We do like to, to paint a different picture <laughs> than it really is. We like to take our failures and reframe them. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a part of that that's kind of natural and healthy, but when it becomes self-deceptive, yeah. that's when you get into trouble. Right. And so, you know, reality really is your friends and saying, you know, take a look at the things in your life. And there might be some things that like, yeah, that 
didn't turn out the way that I wanted to. But I think it's also a humbling thing. It allows us to just be acknowledging before God that he's the one in control of our lives. He can take anything that is failure in our life and turn it around for his glory and for his good. Yeah, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, Tori said that I, I, I really appreciate that he said it is um, when you were asking him, well, what, what, does, what does that look like? How do we embrace it? How do we add this into our life? And he started talking about, you know, uh, community was the first thing he said. And I, and I appreciate that so much because especially in my generation, uh, being the social media generation, we, we have a numbers game that we play, right? We, we, we think we have relationships and we have community based on the number of people that are in it. And the reality is those numbers mean absolutely nothing because most of the time you sp- you're spending trying to pretend to be something that you're not so that they will like you. Mm. And if at the end of the day, all these people think they know you, but they don't because of the perception that you're giving them, then it's it's a completely pointless community, uh, in my opinion. But if you actually end up having a community of people who know you, know you, know who you really are, know the mistakes that you have made, know your sins, know your temptations, know your know, know the things that are the dark parts of you, yet still stand by you, still believe in you, still encourage you, and you know the same about them, you have a real community worth having because they actually are friends with you. Not the fake, masked, right. successful, right. whatever version of you, but the actual you. And if you have one of those people in your life, you have a better community than the people that have thousands of people in their life. And let's just be honest, all the social media stuff is just a bunch of trash. You can have a million followers, not have a single friend. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a lot of the big you know, Instagram people. It, you know, and that's, that's why I like what Mike Mason once wrote as the definition of success, or at least he said, success is when those who know you the best respect you the most. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, I have yet to find a better definition of success. I, yeah. That's you. You're, you're the one who ever, you're the first person to tell me about that quote. And it's become my favorite quote very quickly because it's so true. It, well, it is. And I, and I, like I said, I have a harder time finding a better definition because we can define it in so many different ways. But when you fail at the relationships that are most important to you, yeah. then that's, you know, probably true failure. Right. right? And, uh, and, you know, and there are some that, that have, I mean, there are some of us that have had, you know, significant setbacks in our relationships <laughs> with those that we love the most. And we hurt those that we love the most, but you know, God is able to overcome those as well. Yeah. And, uh, and really that requires us to do what he said. You know, I like that what's important now, you know, whenever you do experience a failure, ask yourself what's important right now to deal with. And, yeah. uh, and I like, I, I kind of like the fact that he used journaling as a way to get at that. <laughs> uh, it is my reality check. You know, right. it is how I kind of take a look and say, all right, am I deceiving myself? Am I asking myself these tough questions? And it's my place to just be brutally honest mm-hmm. uh, with myself where I won't necessarily take that time otherwise to do it. So to me, journaling is an important discipline to getting at that grounded. What is reality? Because it's the only way we're going to see the failures in our life. And oh, by the way, I think we need to embrace failure like he talked about, but embrace <laughs> the fact that we all are failures in one way or another, you know, and to say that we have a successful or perfect life, I think is to be self-deceptive again. Yeah. And it's, it's to put ourselves up on a pedestal and and perhaps because we need some kind of affirmation, there might be something lacking in our own um, history of having people affirm things in us. Affirming things in other people is great, 
But the problem comes is when we try to polish that off and make ourselves more than we really are. Yeah, you know what? The reason me and Tori bonded in Africa the way that we did and we kicked it off as well as we did is that he he just, I, I don't know, he's not a filtered guy. He just tells you how it is. He tells you his struggles. He tells you where he's failed. He's tell, he tells you where in his life he has to have serious accountability because it's not his strengths, right? Like we had a very raw conversation if anyone was listening to it it would have been extremely uncomfortable for them but we vibed so much we i mean it, it was like an instant relationship and i don't have a lot of those especially in, in in the christian circles i get into so many conversations where within 10 minutes i just want to be like dude just cut the crap like, yeah who, you know you're, I, you're stop trying to impress me whatever like let, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think when people are willing to talk about areas where they where they struggle or they fail, that kind of vulnerability is attractive. Yeah. And I remember a friend of mine called me one time and we were talking and I was, you know, asking about things going on in his life and he was very forthcoming. And then he turned the question back to me and he said, Larry, he said, when we talk, you, you ask really good questions and you ask about what's going on in my life. And, you know, and I'm telling you things about what's going on in my life. But it seems like when I ask you questions about what's going on in your life, you kind of quickly move to coming back to talking about me again. <laughs> it's deferring. Boy, I felt, <laughs> did I feel like I got put in a corner and called out? I mean, yeah, I, love I needed a friend like that to yeah, just absolutely. say, you know what? The, the turnabout is fair play here, buddy. I'm not the only one that's going to get vulnerable in my life. I want you to open up too. Yeah, and you've and, done that to me. So yeah, and, he, and he's he's been willing to he was willing to do that for me, and I haven't forgotten it. Yeah. You know that the need to just say, you know what? Yeah, I'm really struggling. Yeah. You know, or whatever. And having that is just so important. And to me, that's kind of that embracing failure, not taking yourself so seriously that you can't go. You know, I'm having a crummy day. Yeah. You know. <laughs> you know, I, I, I here's my question is who is more ridiculous the person who honestly believes that they've convinced the world that they have a perfect job a perfect career a perfect marriage perfect parenting perfect life perfect this perfect that perfect everything or the people who actually believe that guy or that girl i i don't know who's more ridiculous in that scenario when you believe someone is perfect or they believe themselves that they've convinced everyone else that they're perfect i honestly don't know which one is more ridiculous and it drives me a little nuts to be honest yeah, well, I, I don't, I, see, maybe it's a fool's errand to decide. Yeah, no doubt, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I just love, that if there's anything I love about Tori, and, and if there's anyone who's credible enough to talk about failure, it's him, because he's just so honest about everything that he's had in his life, and I'm so glad that we got him, and I hope this is something that sticks yeah. to everyone listening, and that they can live a life that's shameless enough to be honest about who you are, and surround yourself with the people who love you for who you are, and not love you for who you're not. Right on. We hope you found some useful takeaways for you as you embrace your own failure or think about how to be more bold, really, in, in failing. And we'd love to hear your comments about that. Join us at the podcast show line, boldideapodcast.com slash 63. That's the episode notes, and that's where you'll find links to the show notes, quotes from Tori, as well as links to him on Twitter and his uh, ministry page. And, but we also, you will find there a place for you to leave a comment about the show. And we'd love to get your comments as well. Or leave us a comment on our show line at 612-568-IDEA, 612-568-4332. We thank you for listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. And we do appreciate when you leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher at boldideapodcast.com slash review. And we love it when you just let your friends know about 
our podcast. And thanks again for listening. So until next week, this is Larry Gates. And Armin Asadi. Saying so long and be bold. You've been listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. To get our show notes sent to your inbox, visit boldideapodcast.com.